You're listening to TIP. On today's show, we cover billionaire investor Ray Dalio's new book, Big Debt Crisis. For people not familiar with Ray, he's one of the most accomplished financial investors of our generation, managing the largest hedge fund in the world with over $125 billion in assets under management. Recently, Ray published his new book that teaches the readers his construct for understanding economic credit cycles. And on today's show, Stig and I are going to conduct an overview of his book, and we'll talk about the more interesting things that we learned by going through it. So without further delay, here's our review of Mr. Dalio's new book, Big Debt Crisis. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. All right. How's everyone doing out there? Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. Like we said in the introduction, we're really excited to be covering Ray's new book, Big Debt Crisis. I can tell you one thing. If you're in finance and you don't have this book, you might want to go out and get it because this is a this is a masterpiece of macroeconomics as far as I'm concerned. So what Stig and I are going to do is we're going to talk about the overall layout of the book, kind of our general thoughts. And then what we're going to do is we're going to plow into a lot of the main content and I would tell you if you're if you're new to finance or you're just starting business school or something like that, I would probably tell you that it it's probably a hard read for you. This is more of like a master's or doctorate level read. I would tell you to go out there and watch Ray's video. It's called How the Economic Machine Works. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I also want people to know that Ray has put this book out there completely for free on a PDF. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so that, and we'll also reference some page numbers. So if you're listening to this and you're kind of flipping through the book or you have the PDF open on your computer, you'll be able to go to the exact spot that we're talking about and you'll kind of understand the context. And if you want to read more from that spot, you'll be able to do that. With that said, just go ahead and start talking about the first book. When I got this in the mail, I was kind of surprised because it wasn't what I expected. It came in like this case, and then there was three books inside of the case. I really like how he did this because the first book called Part One, it talks about the archetypal big debt crisis. And what it does is it's there's no case study in here. He's just talking in terms of a template. This is what debt crises can look like. He breaks them into two different crises. You have a deflationary depression and you also have an inf- inflationary depression. And he talks about all the different phases of both of those. And then he also provides an awesome introduction and kind of his thought process of how he constructed this stuff before he gets into those two different types. We're going to talk about that in much more depth. The second book that you basically pull out of this case is part two, and this is detailed case studies. In this section, he has three main case studies that go into a lot of depth, 185 pages just covering these three scenarios. And the three scenarios are the German hyperinflation from 1918 to 1924. The second one is the Great Depression time period from 1928 to 1937. And then the last one in this second book is the US debt crisis from 2007 through 2011. Then the third book, which is 219 pages, this is 48 case studies of various inflationary depressions and deflationary depressions throughout you know, the last 100 years. 
I know we're uh, really propping this up, but I think once you get your hands on it, you'll absolutely understand what we're getting at. So let's go ahead and dive into the first book. And Stig, you had some notes that you wanted to talk about at the introduction of this first book that I think are valuable for people to hear. So take it away. What I really like about his book is how good he is at categorizing this is stage one, this is stage two, stage three. And we'll go through those stages afterwards. I think that's extremely valuable compared to some of the other materials that you see out there, which is more like, uh, we can't really know. There's, it's just too complicated, too many factors at play. I think Redell just looked through that and say, this is the template. What I like, Stig, and, and if you read Principles, you'll kind of understand what I'm saying here. Ray is almost like a programmer in the way that he describes things. You know, a lot of people will write a novel and it kind of jumps around in space and time, and then you got to try to piece it together. But Ray writes this book as if it's like he's writing a line of code <laughs> and, and how ordered everything is so ordered and it makes sense. And it's just so well, I mean, he must have edited it a hundred times in order to whittle it down and, and construct it in a manner that is just so synthesized. And I think that's probably one of the reasons I like reading his material so much is because it just makes sense the way that he organizes it. Just in terms of the framework, just something I'd like to point out before we go through the cycles is that debt is not a problem per se, because you will hear us talking about credit. You'll hear us talk a lot about debt throughout this book. It's not a problem per se. The problem is more that if you obtain so much credit and you can't repay it, that's really the problem. He's really shooting at policymakers here because it's too easy as a policymaker to be too loose with the credit and focus at the near-term rewards, faster growth to justify this. So he's more aiming at if we change the political system, if we include a more long-term perspective, we can, if not avoid those crises in the future, then we can reduce the impact of them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to describe the two different, you got the deflationary and you got the inflationary depressions that he talks about here in the book. So the first one, the deflationary depression, and to give people some context, Ray would describe the 2008 crisis as a deflationary depression. This is how he describes it in the book. He says, policymakers respond to the initial economic contraction by lowering interest rates. But when the interest rates reach about 0%, that lever is no longer an effective way to stimulate the economy. Debt restructuring and austerity dominate. In this phase, debt burdens rise because incomes fall faster than restructuring. The last thing that he really hits on, he says, deflationary depressions typically occur in countries where most of the unsustainable debt was financed domestically in local currency, just like what we saw in the US. So that eventual debt burst produces forced selling and defaults, but not a currency or a balance of payments problem. Now, when he describes the inflationary depression, the key difference that he typically talks about between these two is whether the country has their own currency or the country is dependent on foreign currencies. This is how he describes the inflationary depression. He says, classically occurring countries that are relying on foreign capital flows and so have built up significant amounts of debt denominated in foreign currency that can't be monetized. When those foreign capital flows slow, credit creation turns into credit contraction and an inflationary deleveraging Capital withdrawal dries up lending and liquidity at the same time that currency declines produce inflation. Think of a country that's heavily reliant on capital inflows coming into that country. And then when that reverses, that's whenever you typically have these inflationary depressions. Now, what's really fascinating, I found an interview within the last month that Ray just recently had, and I'm going to end up playing that for you guys to show you 
what he thinks is in store for the United States specifically in this next cycle. What I find really fascinating is based on what I just read to you, you would think that the only kind of cycle we could have here in the US would be the deflationary cycle. But after listening to this, it's a little bit different than what you think. And and so just for a little bit of context, what Ray was asked here, he says, you know, the last the 2008-2009 was really bad. What do you expect in this coming cycle? What might that look like? And this is how he responded. Oh, I don't think that it's going to be as sharp and severe like that. I think it's more going to grind on. All of these obligations will be a problem to be funded. And I think it'll be more back there of a dollar crisis than it would be a debt crisis. And I think it'll be more of a political and social crisis. We have to sell a lot of treasury bonds. We as Americans will not be able to buy all of those treasury bonds. And if interest rates rise too much, the way it usually works is that constricts credit. We borrow less. And that creates a weakness in the economy. So instead, because we'll sell to foreigners, from a foreign perspective, when they look at it, they care not about inflation. They care about currency depreciation when they look at the interest rate. So if a currency goes down, the bonds become cheaper. I think the Federal Reserve at that point will have to print more money to make up for the deficit. That'll cause a depreciation in the value of the dollar. You easily can have a 30% depreciation in the dollar through that period of time. So whenever I heard this, I was, I was uh, somewhat blown away that he would say that the dollar could depreciate by such a large figure. Now, he doesn't say what it would depreciate against. I'm assuming, Stig, I'm kind of curious if this is how you take it. I, I would think that he's saying it's a 30% decline compared to gold or other commodities that or like a basket of commodities that he would be saying that. but Because I don't know how, he, how the dollar could depreciate that much against other currencies. And I, I wish that that would be a follow-up question, but that wasn't asked. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? 
How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network in the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. All right, back to the show. It would be natural to say, you know, a basket of other currencies. You know, there's an index where you can go in and track how the U.S. performs against the basket of other currencies. But reading Ray's book and knowing how Ray looks at the world of finance, I would be highly surprised if he wasn't comparing that to gold commodities or perhaps a combination of hard assets. Now, whenever I heard this, I immediately kind of flipped through his book to try to understand it because what I found so confusing about that statement, which was just recently made, was it really kind of goes against one of the main themes that he talks about where the inflationary depressions are typically when a country doesn't have control of their own currency. But he says that it classically occurs and that it's not kind of foolproof that that's the scenario that plays out. And so in the the first book on page 40, if you guys have your PDF or your hard copy there, if you go to page 40, the very last paragraph that says this, can reserve currency countries that don't have significant foreign currency debt have inflationary depressions? And then the next sentence says, while they are much less likely to have inflationary contractions that are as severe, they can have inflationary depressions, though they emerge more slowly and later in the deleveraging process after a sustained and repeated overuse of stimulation to reverse deflationary depressions. So what I find fascinating is, so 2008, he describes as a deflationary depression that we use a significant amount of quantitative easing, which would be this stimulation that he's talking about in this paragraph. And so what I think he's getting at is once you've swapped a significant amount of that credit for dollars that were printed through quantitative easing, and then you've put that into the hands of the people that were holding the assets, the bonds, and even over in Japan, I would argue that they're doing it with equities. When that swap occurs, you kind of get to a point where you're pushing on a string and uh, you get into this situation where maybe the currency is the next thing that has to devalue. And it seems like that's how Ray's describing this next potential cycle. Without going into all that too much, because I think this gets very technical, but I, I found that soundbite extremely interesting and something that I had not heard him say anywhere else. We will have a link to that entire discussion uh, in the show notes. So if people want to go and listen to a lot more, there's a lot more discussion that took place than what we just played for you. You can learn about what causes the phases of the inflationary debt cycle, which the great part about the book is... Ray goes through all five phases of the depressionary and also the inflationary cycle. Something that I think is really important for people to understand is, so on page 58, Ray gets into what is called hyperinflation. And what I find fascinating about this, and I think because people who are hearing this might immediately uh, correlate inflationary depression with hyperinflation. And I would tell you that the way Ray describes it in the book is that they are very different events. Hyperinflation is a much more one-off kind of event. 
that is typically characteristic of a smaller country that is heavily, heavily reliant on outside forces and outside capital and policymakers that don't necessarily understand what they're doing that are printing and printing and printing and all that money just keeps flying out of the country. Just so you understand, the the first book kind of splits those two different depressions, the inflation and the deflation one. Instead of talking about the inflation one, which there's five phases, we're going to cover the deflationary one, which is has seven phases. We're just going to quickly go through this. Stig's going to outline it for you so you kind of get an idea of the level of detail and kind of the way that Ray categorizes each one of these phases. So Stig, go ahead and take it away. Yeah. And those two cycles do have a lot in common. It's not as different as it may sound. Uh, the reason why we wanted to talk about the deflationary debt cycle, that's because I think that's easier to relate to. Most of us can remember what happened in the cycle from 2007 to 2011, and, and it's the same template here. So later in the episode, we're going to talk more about the specific case studies, but this is the general template of what we're looking at. In the first part of the cycle, we have what Ray simply calls the early part of the cycle. And it's the early part because debt is not growing faster than income. This is a really vital point. We would like income to grow and debt is very efficient in doing that, but we don't want it to outgrow income. That's not going to be good. Then whenever you enter the second stage, which is now that you might enter the bubble. And what's happening there is that you have a self-reinforcing fact because with that rising income comes rising net worth, asset value arise again. And the same is the borrower's capacity to borrow. You can even argue that the bull markets are initially justified because the low interest rate make investment assets such as stocks, real estate, more attractive as they go up. And generally, you could say that economic conditions also improve, which would lead to economic growth and higher corporate profits. Another thing that's very interesting here is that it increases the confidence with the population that this is ongoing prosperity. So it really supports the levering up process. The issue here in this second phase, which is he calls the bubble, is that as new speculators and lenders enter the market and the confidence increases, credit standards also fall. And this is a bit odd because you would suspect the opposite. You would, you would suspect things would go well, Companies are making money. They should hold on now. Banks should just allow everyone to, to borrow. That's exactly what's happening here. In the third phase, which he, uh, Riddell calls the top, that's whenever you see central banks start tightening and interest rates rise. And you might to some extent say that that is what you're seeing right now with the US economy. As a result of all this, you also see the yield curve is being flat or even starts to invert, which is a very interesting thing, something you are, are seeing right now. Stig, I just want to describe to people what that means, because we say that a lot on the show, and I don't know that people, you know, every listener would fully understand what that means when we say the bond yield curve inverts. And all it means is if you were looking at a chart and you look on the x-axis of the chart, that would be the duration of a bond. So a very short the federal funds rate is like you know what what's the rate for lending for tomorrow and then the next one would be what's the rate for a 3 month bond then you go to a 6 month and then you go clear out the 30 years on the far right when you think about it intuitively if i'm going to borrow money that's 
that I've got to pay back in 30 years. I would want a much higher interest rate than something that I'm just borrowing overnight or in a very short duration of, of three months. When the bond yield curve inverts, what actually happens is, is you're paying a higher interest rate for a three-month bond than you are for a 30-year bond. And in your mind, there's absolutely no way that can make sense. But this happens. This happens you know, at the top of credit cycles. You will see that the short-duration bonds actually have a higher yield to pay back than long-duration bonds. And Preston, would you argue that we are now in what Redalia would call the third phase, the top? You know, giving how he describes it in the book? I think so, but it's really hard to say, but I would say so. And I think hearing him talk about, he thinks that things are going to be bad in two years from now. You know, a lot of that timing kind of aligns to seeing a top right now. The fact that you're seeing the bond yield curve start to invert in certain areas, I think demonstrates some of that. You're seeing a lot of volatility in the equity market. You're seeing the lowest unemployment we've had in, I don't know, 25, 30 years or something crazy like that. So I think all those things kind of lead to the idea that, yeah, you're seeing a top right now. Interesting. So the fourth phase, that's called the depression phase. And whenever Redalio talks about depression, he refers to a severe economic contraction phase. This is the phase where you see last resort financial support and guarantees. You kind of have ejected capital into uh, systemically important institutions, and you might even nationalize some of them. Contrary to popular beliefs, this deleveraging dynamic is not driven by psychology. It's more driven by the supply and demand and the relationship between credit, money, goods, and, and service. Typically, the way that countries respond to this is that they do that with deep austerity. But the issue about deep austerity is that it does not bring debt and income back into balance because whenever spending is cut, income is also cut. So it takes a lot of awful spending cuts to make a significant reduction. That, again, won't be sufficient. That is definitely a recipe of, of what not to do. The fifth stage he's looking into is what he called the beautiful deleveraging. It is beautiful whenever there's enough stimulation, meaning printing money to offset those deflationary forces like austerity, uh, default. You have to make up for the money that's now gone from the system. The logical question to ask here is, will this not cause inflation? If we just keep on printing money, that should create inflation, right? That is, that is what we learn. But what Ray really gets at here is to think about that a dollar spent is a dollar spent. That doesn't matter if it's printing money or if it's earned in this situation. So you just need to fill the gap. Rather, the trick is not to print too much money. We'll get to that whenever we talk about what happened in Germany after the First World War. But in this case, it's really just all about printing that gap and then not do it too much. And then for the final two stages of the cycle, which he refers to as pushing on a string and normalization, that is when eventually the system gets back to normal through the recovery in economic activity. But it does take a long time. Ray Dalio did a lot of research based on the past cycles, and he found that on average, it takes six years for real economic activity to reach its former peak level. It takes even longer with the stock market. For the stock market, it typically takes 10 years on average because it takes a very long time for investors to become comfortable taking the risk of holding equities again. Going through those six, seven cycles, you might already have an idea of why Preston and I think we are in the third, the, the top 
a phase of the cycle. By reading the book, you can see how that is his template for how he sees cycles. And then for the remainder of the two other books, he kind of put those case studies into those templates, which to me is a very good way of illustrating with real life examples where are we and how can we recognize that as investors and perhaps as policymakers, if that is your position, to avoid that in the future. So what's great about the book is what Stig just went through was for the deflationary. He goes into detail of all seven of those phases. So if you want to know kind of where you might be at in one of those phases, you can read and kind of look for those indicators. At this point, what we're going to do is we're going to transition over to the second book and just kind of lightly cover some of these ideas. And like I told you earlier, it was the German debt crisis, the Great Depression, and then the 2008 crisis in this book. And so much of what happened in Germany was really a result of how the war reparations from the First World War and how Germany was really kind of set up for failure right out of the gate with the way that the reparations were going to have to be repaid and the amount that was going to have to be repaid pretty much uh, laid the foundation for this event to occur. Stig, I'm curious if you have any more detail kind of point out or or the big piece that you kind of took away from the case study? One of the things that I took away was what it really means to be printing money. Germany definitely took that to a very different (laughs) extent than what we've seen. And this was all sparked by Germany taking up a lot of foreign debt. They actually wanted to take on debt in the German mark, but no one wanted to to lend the money. Perhaps that should tell them something that uh, it's a bad sign. But the German plan really was that if they won the war, the mark would appreciate, uh, making the debt burdens more manageable. And of course, the losing countries would then be forced to pay for the German foreign and domestic debt in the war reparations. As we all know, that didn't happen. And they had to pay back the debt in foreign currencies, so in sterling and US dollars. And they had this idea that they had to print more and more money so they could pay back the debt. Obviously, what happens if you just keep on printing money and just think the sky's the limit, you will also depreciate your own currency compared to to other currencies. So whenever the hyperinflation began in 1922, we saw close to a 10,000% inflation rate. And it just went wild. At the end of 1924, they had hyperinflation at 1,000,000%. percent Think about that. Inflation of a million percent a year. Clearly, that wasn't, uh, that wasn't good. I think one of the interesting things I really took away from this, aside from the good stories, if you can put it like that, because we don't really hear about a million percent inflation in the financial world. Well, it did five different things in terms of getting out of hyperinflation. And one of them, and one of the most important ones, was to pick the currency. They issued a new currency, the Rentenmark, and it was backed by gold-denominated assets and packed to the dollar. That was one of the most important steps to get out of hyperinflation and to build trust again in the financial system toward the currency. Also, it's a very interesting segue into the Great Depression, where it was actually for the US to go off the gold standard brought them out of the depression. So I just think that this discussion about the gold standard is, is very interesting, how it can be the solution, but also the, the problem for economies. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. 
It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. You know, what's fascinating is Ray also provides a lot of framework for a good way to handle the crisis and a bad way to handle the crisis. And it's such a useful tool for policymakers in any country to kind of look at what his guidance is based on all the research that he's done through all these case studies where he's seen policymakers that have handled something really well versus how they've handled something really poorly. And he 
in the way that he lays it out in the book, he literally lays the good framework right next to the bad framework to kind of give people an idea of of how things should be handled, which is quite incredible. Moving on to the um, the second case study in the second book, which was the uh, the Great Depression. One of the key takeaways that I had because Ray lays this out like month by month practically from 1927 I think he starts at let me see here it is around 1927 no, 1928 up through 1937 he lays out the play by play of everything that went down and what I found fascinating was particularly the time frame from 1929 right up until the middle of 1932 because this downturn in the stock market particularly just kept grinding on. Like if you think about how long that plays out from the summer of 29 into the summer of 32, that is a very long period of time. Like that is 3 years of downturn. And when we think back to the 2008 time frame, it just kept grinding from like 2007 to 2009. That felt like that was just happening forever. So I couldn't imagine going through another year of that. And I think the thing that I also find really amazing, he has a chart on page 71 of the second book. And on this page, he shows how when it initially had the 50% downturn in 1929, the market actually had a 48% resurgence. And so any person who was experiencing this Probably, you know, if you're a market participant and you see a 50% downturn and then you see the market recover at 48%, you're like, okay, well, that bout of terribleness is over. Let's get back in, only to find that it dropped another 40%. And then it had another rise of 16. And then it went down like another 40 or 50%. There was, here, let me count them one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It went through these phases seven different times. Where a person who's participating in the market would have thought, okay, this thing has to be over. Let me re-enter only to get clobbered once again. And I think that he has something in here that he wrote that says, if you think that going through this would have been easy to identify where the bottom was, I can assure you that that was definitely not the case because this thing was just, it just devoured all the market participants until there was just total capitulation and no one wanted to touch it. I really find that quite interesting and very representative of what it's like to be a market participant in something that feels like it's over when in fact it might not be. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's hard to read the label uh, from inside the box. I can't imagine how it would be like being a participant in the market uh, back then. It's interesting how he outlines what happens in 27 and 28. You saw the stock market nearly double in that time frame and he talks about how stocks were sold at extremely high multiples. Stocks were valued as much as 30 times earnings, which is actually what the US stock market is valued at right now. What he's also getting at is that during the phase of the bubble, the more prices went up, the more credit standards were lowered. What is very interesting is that 1928, the Fed started to tighten the monetary policy. You saw the rates go up from 1.5%. 2 5% over a very brief period of time. Just one year later, in, in August 2019, they raised rates again. If we look specifically at the stock market, because it peaked in September 1929, that was when Dow Jones closed at 381. It should take over 25 years before it would reach that level once again. One of the issues that they had was that they couldn't just print money. That is the solution Red Dalio provides 
for a more modern context. But at the time, they couldn't do that because it was tied to gold and they couldn't just keep printing money because then it would allow the population to redeem their money for gold, which they didn't have. So the policymakers at the time were working with the limited toolkit. And it was not before they broke the link with gold that that really happened. And with the, the policies that you saw coming out in 1933 with Roosevelt, that's really whenever you see the, see the US, I wouldn't say coming out of the recession, that's probably using that prematurely, but they were slowly working them out of it. And one of the key things was really to leave the gold standard. Referring to the to discussion before what happened in Germany in the 20s was really interesting because in Germany, they needed to peg it to the gold standard, whereas the US needed to leave the gold standard to get out of the recession. I want to highlight one other thing that I liked whenever I was going through these case studies. He broke the uh, book into a right rail, almost like a web page, how you have a, a rail on the side. And in that rail, he has, uh, like, I'm just looking at page 87 here. He has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight news headlines in that rail that encompass you know, various points of time that match up with the, the main body of the text that he's talking about to give a person a qualitative feel for the headlines that were in the newspaper throughout the entire duration of the boom to the bust to the recovery of what it looks like. And I'll tell you, I was just reading each one of these headlines. And to me, it really gave me a, a good sense of what it would look like as you were going through it. I think this was such a great way of keeping the person in that moment as you're kind of reading it. Just another attribute that just adds to the way that you're going through this and trying to experience the bubble as if you were going through it at that moment in time. I, I really like that. So let's go ahead and jump to the uh, last one, which was the 2007 through 2011 more recent crisis. In this, there's a lot more detail. And I think that most of that is because of just the availability of data that he was able to use and kind of go through. He goes into great detail talking about all the mortgage lending, the the CDOs, the mortgage-backed security stuff. I mean, it's just it's quite extensive. Lots of charts going through the inflation that occurred through that period of time. So you kind of understand that, what the unemployment numbers look like. Again, all the headlines are on the side. But of all of that stuff, I found one thing very noteworthy that I want to talk to you guys about. So in here, Ray publishes a letter that he wrote to clients and also policymakers. And the date on this is July 26, 2007. This is what Ray wrote to his clients. Now, just to frame this, the 26th of July, 2007 was probably within 30 days of the top of the stock market. It might have even been within like 15 days of the top of the stock market in 2007. The title of this is is this the big one? And this is how it reads. You know our view about the crazy lending and leveraging practices going on, creating a pervasive fragility in the financial system, lending us to believe that interest rates will rise until there is a cracking of the financial system. There's a lot more. I'm skipping through it, but then he writes, a few months ago, we undertook an extensive study to see which market players held which positions, especially via the derivatives market. And we concluded that no one has a clue that is because one can only vaguely examine these exposures one level deep. 
He's talking about his severe concern for the market conditions. Only a couple weeks later on August 10th, he writes another one, another letter to his clients and policymakers. And this one's titled, This is the Big One. And the letter reads, By that, we mean that this is the financial market unraveling that we've been expecting. Deeper in the letter, he writes, We have a game plan developed over many years that we have confidence in because we plan for times like this. And I I mean, realize this is the top of the market. Like he is literally at the top of the stock market and he's writing these things. Anyway, so he goes through this letter and he's saying, There is going to be a financial crisis, a very bad financial crisis. And he wrote the letter at the very top of the market. He includes this in the book. And it is just fascinating to kind of read and see the foresight that he had at that moment in time is just mind blowing. Stig, I'm curious to hear one of your key takeaways for the 2008 crisis from the case study in the book. I think one of my key takeaways was how much credit standards were lowered through this bubble. As we talked about before in this episode, you would typically expect that they should tighten the credit standard as the good times are rolling on, but the opposite happens. Greed kicks in. At the time, you saw a lot of self-reinforcing expectations that were drawing in new borrowers and, and lenders for that matter who did not want to miss out of the action. You had cases where you could borrow more than 100% of the value of your house because you expected it to go up in price or value as you would probably be looking at it. You had the bottom quintile, so the bottom 20%. They increased their debt more than anyone else through this time period. And this was a group who did not diversify into other asset classes who had their net worth tied to that home and to that continuing to go up. Hopefully, that's a lesson learned. I don't know if it is. I do not think that the credit standards are as low today. As a side note, I would also like to say it's interesting how Warren Buffett has placed a huge bet on the American financial system, which kind of surprised me whenever I saw that. And he's usually right, I'm wrong. I do want to say, though, in the bull case, if any, for for that bet, credit standards seems to be very different today than back then. One key takeaway is I would like to compare the Great Depression, so from 1928 to 1937, and then to what we saw here in 2008. One of the big differences is the speed in which the policymakers made the crucial step to make an injection of capital into the system. Already in November 25 in 2008, you saw the Federal Reserve and Treasury announcing $800 billion in lending and asset purchase, and you saw the first quantitative easing program kick in. And that really filled that gap in liquidity that were so desperately needed, which you didn't see during the Great Depression. All right. So that's going to conclude our summary of this book. This is really technical stuff. And I know that if you're listening to it, it might be difficult to fully understand everything that we're trying to cover here. I would strongly encourage you to get the hard copy on Amazon because if it looks anything like my book, it's tabbed, it's highlighted. I just have notes all through this thing. It's just a lot easier for me to read than on a computer screen. That's just my personal preference. The outline of the book is very easy to follow and it's it's really great for referencing. If you're, if you're like, oh, I want to read this section over again, it's so easy to find the way that he has it laid out. Big fans, we didn't even cover the third book, which was the 48 case studies. And it's a treasure trove of examples of not just in the US, but all over the world where these debt crises have played out. You really couldn't get a better treasure trove of information as far as I'm concerned. So that concludes our summary of Big Debt Crisis by Ray Dalio. All right, guys, that was all the press done I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. We see each other again next week.
Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.